0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Hello and welcome to Off The Beat and Track Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Stu Whiffin. It's another week, therefore, it's another episode. Today's episode, I sit down with podcaster, comedian broadcaster writer Callie Beaton and we have an absolutely delightful chat um it was the first time I'd got to to speak to Callie and uh and it's just one of them chats that instantly when when a guest just sort of puts you at ease and I guess that's generally meant to be my job that um that I make the, the the guest feel at ease but um it's always interesting when when the, the zoom link pops up and, and and you meet someone for the first time and you know that you're about to you know have a, a sort of deep dive into into their story and, and it's always really nice when what happened on this one was like Kelly was just instantly very very friendly really engaging and and it made it for it made it really easy for me to to, to make this a great episode so you're in for a treat today I should also say if it's your first time listening um welcome you're late to the party um i've had nearly 500 episodes out now so um when you get to the end of today's ace chat with Callie, go and have a deep dive um into who's been on already and uh and if you like if you like comedy and you like comedians you can hear my chats with ed gamble james acaster tom davis uh Maisie adams uh blimey who else jade adams um, Rich Wilson, Marcus Birdman, Jem Brister, oh, bloody loads. So um, if you like your comedy, there's stacks to get your teeth stuck into there. Um, and if you're into music, uh, which I presume you are, then uh, go and check out some of my chats with the likes of the Foo Fighters and Tommy Lee and Motley Crue, The Killers, uh, The Kaiser Chiefs, The Kooks, Madness. Uh, gosh, the list is endless. Um, I imagine... If you're a fan of music, then there'll be a fair few episodes that you will see in that back catalogue that I'm sure you'll be intrigued to go and listen to. Um, do it, because there's some ace natters. Um, I want to do a few thanks. Um, I'd like to thank the Distraction Pieces Network, which this podcast is very proud to be part of. I'm also super hyped that Hotel Chocolat have uh, announced they're going to continue to sponsor Off The Beaten Track. It's a lovely relationship that's that's been rolling now for a few years. And uh, and it also means that I get loads of delicious free chocolate and chocolatey booze. Uh, so what's not to like? Um, o- honestly, th- there's not a lot I can tell you about Hotel Chocolat that I'm sure you don't know. They make really nice chocolate. Um, and I've been telling you about their, their alcohol range for a long time. Uh, just go and get stuck into that. Going to be doing some really interesting things uh, with Hotel Chocolat um, over the coming months, which I'll be telling you more about um very soon um but yeah so super stoked to have them back um and to continue their sponsorship of off the beaten track i also want to say huge thanks to the blue murder club podcast uh it's the team over there that produce these episodes so thanks to them um go check them out great true crime podcast um with some wonderful guests some guests i'm sure you're recognized from off the beaten track um and also, just um, thanks to you lot for continuing to support this podcast. You know, we're a few years in there, and it's trying to stay on top of two episodes a week is uh, is hard work. Well, it's not hard work. That's a lie, lie. All I do is jump on Zoom and have a lovely natter with someone, so it's not that hard work. But you know, they have to be, you know, put together and and uh, and it does involve a little bit of work. So let me tell you how you can support the podcast because i want to make sure they you know that the podcast remain free and continue to do so um you can nudge your mate and tell him that there's this old guy from Essex with a list that's got a music podcast where he talks to wonderful people and has great chats that's that don't cost anything that'd be great you can go on apple podcasts or spotify and, and give us a, a subscriber or a follow um and i'm on the socials i'm on um Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. And you can go over there and just give us a little like, love, share, retweet, anything like that. Sling us a message of who you'd like to hear me chat to. I'm always interested in whose uh whose conversations you'd like to hear. So let us know. Um and then there's one way you can support like even even more so uh and that's over on my Patreon. And I know that a lot of, you know, podcasters and musicians have Patreons and, and they can be a little pricey and I'm super aware that we're in a cost-of-living crisis at the moment, so I keep mine to a dollar a month, and so that's 70-odd pence. And for that, I'll try and give you quite a lot of bang for your buck. Um, I, I do a live show once a month, and I do that on Zoom, and it's wonderful. We pick one of the questions that I always ask the guests, and everybody turns up on Zoom. Some people don't have their camera on, or Mike, they just want to sort of turn up and watch. That's fine, but others want to get involved, and there's a lovely little gang of patrons, and we all sit there and we have a nice, warm, non-judgy natter about records and uh, and nostalgia, and it's lovely. and uh, And I'd love for more of to to come along, and uh, and that costs you seventy p a month. So you can just join up for a month, come to one of the live shows, and rinse the back catalogue because there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of radio shows, mixtapes and episodes. That have never been released to the public um there. So just come on and join for a month and just rinse it and let us know what you think. Um and also, yeah, week to week I try and do I put up all the video episodes so you can watch all the conversations. Um I put together little mixtapes and radio shows, as I mentioned, so I try and put something like that out each week as well. So yeah, loads of stuff. And you can find out about that at Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash off the beat and track. Um, and I know I bang on about it on every episode, but it is just 70 pence, and it really does help. It all goes in the pot to kind of cover the production and, and all the other bits and pieces that go into ensuring that I put two, three episodes out each week. Um, and there's another way. If you just don't want to sort of subscribe to the Patreon, you can just buy us a cup of coffee. Um, the link will be in the show notes. Just just click on onto that, and then it'll be buy me a coffee. And yeah, one of the things, if I'm going to, you know, if I keep having these chats and, and keep having to sort of do all the, the work that involves uh, two podcasts a week, it's tiring. So pick me up, go and buy me a cup of coffee, and uh, and that would be amazing. Um, but yeah, anyway, that's all the big boring bits done, and uh, and thanks loads um, for all your support anyway today. Right, we can get on with it now. Please enjoy today's episode of Off The Beaten & Track Podcast with the delightful Callie Beaton it's off the beat and track podcast on the distraction pieces network with me stew with okay we are recording carrie how are you today
2: i'm all right thank you um i don't know if we're supposed to say when we're recording but it's valentine's day It is, and it's lovely to be spending it with uh, a happily married and doing a podcast, so great, couldn't be better over here in single life <laughs>
1: <laughs> how, is, how, how is it being single uh, on Valentine's Day how do you find that Do you give I quite
2: it like show? it I and I quite like it this year um, I've, I, it's varied, I'm not a massive believer in it anyway and I think it depends doesn't it, I feel quite happily single at the moment So, and I've got loads of flowers, um, two bunches because I bought them for myself <laughs> So there's a place around the corner that sells off flowers at the end of the day for like 50p a bunch. Yeah. So I'm always walking past it. I happen to have picked up a couple of good bunches from them this week. And then I got sent some by someone I'd done a job for as well. So I've got three beautiful bunches of flowers, wonderful. none of them from suitors, but my, the downstairs of the house looks like I'm extremely popular and loved.
1: Wonderful. Wonderful. I'm going to ask you to start your playlist and, I'm gonna ask you, please, Callie, to tell me the song that you regard as having the greatest ever intro, please.
2: I don't even think it's the I regard it. It's just a fact. Surely everyone says this one. It's Sweet Child of Mine, Guns and Roses.
1: Why did you choose that?
2: Just as soon as you hear that first beat, you're like, this is what's happening. It it's like, it's just what life's about, isn't it? It's got power. And pelt and it's great. Pelt's the fur thing, isn't it? I love it, and I still love it. There's a really brilliant bar near me. I live um in Kentish Town and up the road at Tufnell Park. There's a bar called Aces and Eights, where they have incredible music. Like later, you've probably been there, like late at night. They always have DJs and uh, they play uh, every track they play is fantastic. But they're still everyone's up on their feet. And it's it's like a scene out of Thelma and Louise every time. I love it. So yeah, it's it's just just gets you right there, and you know what's coming, right after the first note, two notes, you Absolutely. know what what track it is.
1: It's so weird you mentioned that that that's that soundtrack your night by the from the DJ at Aces and Eights, right? Because the DJ at Aces and Eights is my friend Liam, and
2: the hot DJ at Aces and Eights. <laughs> yeah, what you're throwing that into the mix on <laughs> Valentine's Day? Hold on, back the track up. <laughs> Here's a happy conversation. <laughs> So he's
1: from Essex, uh, as am I, and he, I gave him his DJ break. I run a, I run a nightclub in Essex um, called the Pink Toothbrush, and uh, Liam m- literally like wrote to me and said, "Can I come and come and DJ? I want to be a DJ." And I was like, "Yeah." And he's gone on to become uh, a really, really amazing DJ. And that's he's all, really that's, that's good. Where he's there. Nah. Just well, he just is a handsome s- boy.
2: Oh my God! He literally—I mean, every time I've ever been there, and I, li- yeah, I, I go there a lot—and he has always got at least one extremely attractive admirer trying <laughs> to get into his booth. <laughs> so please send him my regards I as a middle-aged so. fan who he will not so. have noticed because I've not been twenty-five and trying to g- g- get close to him.
1: <laughs> so, Callie, we're we're of a similar similar age, and. Tell me about the impact that Guns N' Roses had on you, because around our kind of formative years, they were probably the biggest band on the planet then.
2: Definitely. And as, as you know, I think you are we just worked out you're like three, four years younger than me, which in musical terms is similar, but enough to be a little different, isn't it? Yeah. But as you know, in those days, it was like what was on the radio or what did your mates like or what could you afford to buy? It wasn't like oh I'll check things out on Spotify and I'll, so so it, it was pre- you, you couldn't go many places when that song came out you couldn't go to many bars or places without hearing it right it would yeah. tend to come on if you were somewhere long enough which at that age I always was there long enough and um, it was just a real it wasn't even what I was into like I was really more I was more kind of emo it wasn't called emo then obviously but I was kind of gothy indie sort of that was more my thing I was less rock. But I feel like some of those kind of tracks, they just unite. It doesn't matter what musical tribe you're in, right? Yeah. There are some things we're just like, that that's that's gets everyone, right? That is a floor-filling banger of a piece of music.
1: 100%. I want to talk intros. And when, when I have musicians, on, I, I talk to them about their approach to intros and, and how attention spans are getting shorter and, and thumbs are moving quicker. Uh, and there's that pressure to sort of grab people instantly with, with a song when you're writing it tell me about stand-up and how do you approach your intro do you go big with the first ga- with the first gag or do you kind of what, what's your approach to it because I spoke to multiple comedians on here and they've all got very different approaches to it and I know it's not on all shows but on some shows you do have intro music if so what do you go for
2: heroes Bowie. David Bowie oh. yeah because I mean, not because I think I'm a hero. I'm gonna
1: say that's that's that, you, you're writing a big check there, walking out to that, aren't you? Well,
2: you are, but I just think most people. I, I lo- I've always loved that. I think it's just. I mean, I love very full stop. I haven't picked any uh, for this, but I do. And that to me, I think this sounds like a real humble brag, which I guess it is now. I think about it, but I I ran the London Marathon ten years ago for the first time. Um, when I just split up with somebody with the the love of my life and I was I'd had six months of sort of heartbreak and training for a marathon and my kids were whatever they were sort of early teens at the time and they put together a playlist for me I don't normally run to music but they put together a playlist for me in case I needed something to get me around the last few miles and I did fine until about mile 20 and then I put on their playlist as I was running through the tunnel by embankment so you can't hear the crowds you just hear the thumping of the feet on the on the you know uh, on the road yeah. and the first one that came on was heroes and I just I cried I was running crying. I'm nearly crying saying it and and I've it's always meant a lot to me that song but for me knowing my kids had put that on as the first thing I would hear on their marathon playlist so for me it's less I'm a hero aren't you lucky to be seeing me it's more this is a massive shot in the arm for me. And hopefully, I think most people feel the same when they hear it, right? It just gets everyone's adrenaline going.
1: Yeah, it's perfect. It's as close to perfect as, as, as a record can get. So tell me about your approach to that first, that intro, the minute you grab the mic.
2: Well, mine has changed, and I think this happens for a lot of people, um, is that we get a bit less crowd-pleasy as we go on, which sounds weird because it is obviously on the job description you are meant to quite please the crowd or you've not done very well. But um, I just mean like less desperate to get a laugh quickly and more confident that I'll get them on side. Um, So one of the things that is really important, thinking about beats in stand-up and beats in music, is... The first thing I do now when I get onto the stage is nothing. So I get up, take the mic out of the stand, have a look at everyone and let them have a look at me. And I'll hold that for two or three seconds before I say a word. And that alone makes the most enormous difference because you don't seem desperate to be liked. You've occupied the space and you've given them a chance to get a look at you because otherwise, whatever you say first, they're like, oh, wait a minute, who are you? What, huh? I wasn't expecting you. So it just gives people to just a, a chance to absorb those first impressions a bit. Um, but yes, I'm still not courageous enough and I so admire people who are to do a bit of a longer build or come on in a way that's a bit more dislike. You know, Finn Taylor's probably the most classic example of someone who He really goes out there like, like me, hate me, I'll do what I want, thanks. And he's brilliant. And they almost always, he, you know, he kills every time I've seen him ever do anything. He's incredibly talented But I'm the opposite of Finn Taylor in that regard. I still do want to be liked. So I will have a banker gag definitely within the first 30 seconds. I'll have tried to get a massive laugh. Um, Someone said to me that as a female comedian, you not only need to get a laugh within the first 30 seconds, you need to be liked. Whereas male comedians, that person was saying, don't need to worry about being liked, just getting the laughs. I don't know if it's as gendered as that. But Yeah. um, yeah, so I take a beat and then try and put out a sort of banger fairly quickly.
1: I like what you said there about, you know, uh, 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 over time, you know, you're, you're less desperate to get that laugh straight away and, like, you're you're kind of, you know, do your thing until, you know, the, the time comes to do that. And I guess that's very similar to, to bring that back to music is, you know, if you listen to, like, the first Arctic Monkeys record, it's like, rah, listen to us, and it's like hooks, 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 bangers, 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 and then you get that experience and maturity, and then it's like, right, well, now we can do what we want to do and we can take our time and we can experiment more so i do think there's sort of massive parallels there
2: i love it that you've that i've got anything that would even remotely be parallel to the arctic <laughs> Monkeys. so i'm going to take that i'm going to take that bottle it keep it forever <laughs> all right well
1: i'm going to take you back cali for, for for track two um can you tell me please the first song you remember hearing that had an emotional impact on you please
2: Not only can I remember it, I could still sing the whole thing to you word for word, beat for beat. Uh, So it's Romeo and Juliet, Dire Straits.
1: Tell me about your memories attached to that.
2: Well, it was all my first love. It was Nick Young was my first love. He's not called Nick Young anymore, so I can say his name. Uh, And I was with him from when I was 14 to when I was 16. And we were massively, massively in love. I remember when I broke up with him, um, my mum saying to me, she said, you know, this feels like the end of the world now, but you're going to look back on this when you're older and just realize it was just kind of puppy love and you're okay. And I still look back on it and think that was one of the loves of my life, that that lovely two-year relationship when we were both at school. And um, and it was and wasn't innocent, you know, as relationships from 14 to 16 are and aren't. So it, it was charted me sort of becoming an adult, I guess. And um I, I'm not a dire straits fan. I've never been particularly a dire straits fan. Uh, but that particular song, um, I remember him, I I think it I still think it's a really I yeah, I still love it and it still makes me emotional. And he also um we met in our English class, we both think English uh, O level as then was, and I remember he bought me um a rolling stones album and he'd quoted a shakespeare sonnet he'd written it around the edge of the album the in the cover um the, the sleeve not the cover the sleeve inside and then so i guess it was the fact that he wooed me with a shakespeare sonnet which i now look back i'm like he didn't even he didn't even fully get the right bits of the sonnet so it was definitely a bit pretty, a Still pretty smooth, the for sonnet. 14. smooth but he was 15 that he was a year right. older than me and still is a year older than me, I dare say. But he, um, so he did that. So I think it was a combination of being wooed with a Shakespearean sonnet, meeting in English, a song called Romeo and Juliet, and then just the lyrics. And I just remember sitting with him in his uh, bedroom at his mum's house, because we obviously still both lived with our parents. And um, yeah, and just, and just loving listening to it. And he was a kind of like, he he was in a very kind of, hippie at home is a single mom we smoked weed she didn't give a shit I was the child of two school teachers had had a much more much more buttoned up upbringing so it was kind of like hearing that music hanging out with this guy smoking a little spliff and thinking life's good so and I was probably about 14 15 when I heard it
1: tell me the exact emotion that you got from that
2: it's a good question. I think it was just like that feeling when you really love somebody and you feel really safe in a way that it's quite hard to feel when you get when you're dating older. You know, I'm in 30 years later into the dating game now, and everything feels much more guarded. So I think that's complete like like home. Like I'm uh, this is where I belong. I'm with this guy, I've listened to this song. Life is sweet. In a way, it's very rare you get those undiluted moments, and I don't think it was all to do with being stoned. I think the emotions (laughs) ran pure.
1: Yeah, it's a beautiful record,
2: and I think it is.
1: Yeah, and I think most people, certainly like that I know, will say, "Yeah, I'm not really into Dire Straits, but I love Romeo and Juliet."
2: Yeah, some people hate it though; it's a bit marmite. I've told a couple of people. I always think, um you date a bit via playlists and music, right? Or I do anyway. So you start to get a sense of a person and music plays quite an important part in my early days of relationships or early weeks. And anyone who really hates that song, I do find it a little bit hard to get over. It's just like someone who hates dogs. I'm like, nah. Yeah. Somebody who hates that song, I'm like, nah, there's something missing. I don't know if I can date you.
1: I mean, I know exactly what you're saying. It's 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 so true, isn't it? And then, like, I mean, it's pure high fidelity stuff, isn't it? It's, it's purely, um, like, exactly what i would expect from, from uh, Nick Hornby. But it does matter. And I think you can't, because I don't know if it's, like, if you find that, but if I if I ask a song that like, I absolutely love and, like, and it's on and somebody that, you know, that I like, that are my friends and my family just go, oh, this is awful. It It upsets me a little bit and like oh it's a
2: big problem isn't it it, yeah it really is though oh it is
1: yeah and and it's exactly the same as what you said there it's like someone that don't like dogs it's like yeah that ain't gonna
2: work something's missing it's also a real lesson to all of us like you know I'm sure you're you're not like this because it's you're immersed in music for a living but people who write off the next generation of music, like, oh, it's not like it used to be. It's like, well, listen to it, get yeah. to know it. And part of the reason we think music that comes through isn't as good as it used to be is because we're not at an age where we are completely consumed with music 100%. around the clock. So through I know through my kids, you know, just being open to the music they like has been really important to me, even if I might think on the first listen, oh, I don't know what the hell that's about. You know, that's how I discovered that Avicii did so many great things my son was massively into EDM for a while so I would get to know all of those stuff I probably wouldn't have particularly been seeking out and yeah I wouldn't put Avicii on wall to wall but there's some amazing stuff and a lot of it reminds me of my son and I think it's it's being having your eyes open isn't it to things that aren't what you might instinctively like and seeing what's out there that's that uh, that's because it is the world makes the, the music makes the world bigger and more interesting doesn't it
1: couldn't agree more I couldn't agree more and and it's weird like I don't know if have you ever tried to sort of thrust bands and stuff like that upon your kids because I've tried to not do that I want them to kind of find their thing and and if I don't like it then I guess that's kind of good because I'm sure there's going to be records that we talk about today that I was I was probably totally in love with my parents would have just been like what is this shit and it's like definitely but that's what you want you don't want your parents I mean you know that's why I, I guess you know not that, not that I'm got anything against them but your, your Ed Sheeran's and that they're, they're great at what they do but your parents are never going to go well, turn that shit off
2: exactly and you're it, not going to yeah <laughs> I do remember um I didn't try and influence my kids uh, into me. I mean, I did definitely try and play a range of music. I also I'm a classical pianist. Well, I, I barely play now, but I, I was a classical pianist. So I did try to play classical music sometimes just so they'd get the get a sort of ear for it, kind of accessible classical music and a range of stuff. But I do remember when um Black Eyed Peas, when they were chart topping with Where is the Love for however many weeks that was, and we used to watch Top of the Pops back then, still together as a family, and we got the album on CD and we went on a road trip that summer somewhere and the kids were like, I don't know, three and six or something, and we listened to Elephant the whole summer and then I remember realizing when Where Is The Love came on it was I was like oh there's stuff in here and there's definitely stuff on the album that is not entirely suitable for three and six but actually they still there and so one thing my kids still both love is the Black Eyed Peas from that summer with a cd player and not much other option.
1: Love it I also love the fact (laughs) that some songs are just just exist in a different place and and let me sort of explain what I mean by that and it's like I was, I was driving my kids in the car, and it's, it's generally, it's, I, I love how many people reference kind of important songs in in their life, and it's generally in road trips in the car, than it's in the yeah. Car. Um, but I was just driving along, and and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna try and be too cool. I'm quite happy to to sling on a bit of smooth or magic if if the mood suits me, and uh, and somewhere in my heart, come on by Aztec Camera, right, which. I think it's one of the greatest pop records ever made. For sure. That's an intro. Um,
2: That's true, yeah.
1: And, and literally, my kids were quite young at the time. I just clocked in the wind mirror. Both of them were like Summer in the City and the Airy sh- And I was like, how do they know the words to this? And I was like, how do you know this song? And they were like, I don't know, we just know it. And like, And I just think there's certain songs that are just – Ingrained in in the fabric of life that are so good and so memorable, you can hear them once and they're there. Don't might sound like completely bonkers, Callie, but like doesn't
2: sound it at all. But
1: I just couldn't understand how they knew this song now if they sing something like, like my youngest come down in a Smiths t-shirt, which I, I literally burst into tears. I was like, I've finally succeeded. Yeah, I've I've, I've got her on board, and um, but uh, but now. Any time that like, I play something from my generation or generations before and they're singing along, I know now it's just through TikTok. They're like, oh, no, this is huge on TikTok. And I'm like, yeah. But, but, yeah, I just I love that. And it might I might be way off, but just how some songs just exist and people know them and I don't know how they know them. They're just that good and that infectious and hook-ridden and brilliant.
2: And they're almost – it's like they're in the sand of – us as humans, the sand sort of settles and there are some songs that are just in the sand and they're just there and you don't know where they came from but they're, and you don't realise you know the words and you don't, and then you're like, yeah, those songs that are like coming home, I've come home, that song's on, everything's okay.
1: Callie, thanks for making me not look totally mad. Cheers. Yeah, exactly.
2: I mean, (laughs) inside I'm like, what? But I'll go with it.
1: Cheers. (laughs) Um, You mentioned that your parents were teachers and you as a, Home was quite musical growing up.
2: Was and still is. So yeah, my mum sang and my dad sang and played uh, timpani, which he still does. So my dad re uh, sort of pivoted in his career in his forties from being a deputy head teacher to being a classical musician. So he'd always played, but he self taught. He's self taught drummer and did a bit of kit drum and then got into timpani and you get very booked if you play timpani because there aren't many timpanists and um, not that he's not good, but it's a rare, it's fairly rare sort of, um, yeah. They're fairly rare breed. So yeah. So he's so surrounded by music, classical music, no, no pop music. My parents are not into pop music furthest they'd go away from classical would be towards jazz, which as we know is nowhere near pop, but yes, definitely surrounded by music. And we always had a piano, and um, both my parents, and my mum was a pretty good pianist. So I just kind of from from when I could stand up and reach the piano keys, I sort of was trying to play the piano and then I learned to read music the same time I learned to read words. So I and I love I spent I don't know how many hours of my childhood playing the piano. I was a very unconfident, bullied child, and it was a safe space for me. So I was definitely an outlier and the piano was a very safe place to be.
1: Do you not play anymore? I
2: don't play... I don't really play enough, actually. It's it's funny you say that. Every time I have a conversation about it, I've got a beautiful piano downstairs and I've got a note on my phone that I've had for about six months trying to get the piano tuned. I mean, it's perfectly playable, but it is out of tune. Um, I don't really play very much my daughter I played enough to get my kids into it my daughter's a really good classical pianist but again she's now left home doesn't play much so yeah family tradition of squandering things we can do well but yeah it's time isn't it I'm always so busy and as a comedian there's always something to do you're always writing putting out clips doing the next thing and I do lots of other things besides so it's just finding that time Equally, I could easily get lost down a rabbit hole on TikTok for half an hour. So obviously there is the time and I need to stop bullshitting myself.
1: Where was growing up?
2: Uh, it was, well, I always think of it as Dorset. We, I was actually born in Buckinghamshire, but we lived in Dorset from when I was seven. So I always sort of think of myself as more Dorset than anything else.
1: You've got fond memories of, of living there?
2: Uh, mixed memories. I mean, I as you may or may not know, I, I've talked about it a fair bit. I was, um, my parents... Worked at a boys boarding school and so I was a girl at a boys boarding school um, which is and I was fat ginger bespectacled uh, was not a recipe for an idyllic childhood I would say but there were aspects of it that were idyllic where we lived albeit we were in a teacher's house you know we had no money but we did live in somewhere that was you know 150 acres of rolling beautiful grounds that belonged to the school so um, it was a kind of privileged workplace to feel like an outsider
1: that's quite a, a statement, isn't it? A privileged place to feel <laughs> like an outsider. That's
2: that just funny. describes comedy, to be honest. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, look, let's talk school. And, and for track three, Kelly, okay, I'm going to ask you to tell me the song reminds you of your time at school, please.
2: Well, I've gone a bit later than that point when I was an, an unhappy little girl in a boys school into when I finally got into the local state school. So I was dying. I used to read Jackie magazine and stuff. And all I wanted was to be a normal person at a normal school.
1: Did you not So I was then?
2: Not in a private school as a you don't anyway, I don't think and in, in a private school with no money. So most people, everyone else in the school was rich. That's why they were at the school. We had no money. So I was a teacher's kid. That's why I was there. I was not the same gender as everyone else. And probably the way I kind of looked as a kid, I wasn't going to have an easy ride of it anywhere, really. So definitely didn't feel, didn't really, no, it didn't. It wasn't completely unhappy, but it wasn't particularly the easiest start. But then I ended up, I had two years at my local State Secondary, which was a, which was sort of merged from loads of schools across the kind of Dorset area. So it was quite a big school for, for a country school. Um, you know, like a couple of hundred in each year. So decent sized secondary school. And I just loved it. And Only You yazoo is the song I've picked, which is much more kind of school disco than it is little childhood.
1: I I heard that on the radio yesterday. Uh, and it was one of the ones I still get joy. It's completely different if you hear a song on the radio than if you hear it on Spotify. Oh, yeah, of course it is, yeah. Um, yeah,
2: Serendipity.
1: Oh, and I only caught the second half of it. It's so beautiful, isn't it?
2: Just per, It's perfect. It's a perfect, do you think, a perfect song, a masterclass. Yeah. And so kind of understated. And it was so, if you think about it, I mean, even now, there'd be nothing like that. Even Alison Moyer's voice. Yeah. We don't take it for granted. Now, I still hear her, I think, you know, it just blows my socks off. But at the time, it was just revolutionary, wasn't it, to hear a woman singing like that?
1: Yeah, hugely. And we're, we're fiercely proud, us Essex people, because that's where moye and that's where Vince Clark are from. And You should like, be fiercely proud of those are, two. We are. Yeah. And, uh, and I mean, for me, I don't know if it if it the same for you, but... It's impossible to hear that now and not have that Tim and Dawn office.
2: Definitely, it's definitely, so, yeah, you so well there.
1: And, yeah, you know, you could easily have just gone for a Snow Patrol song and just got the tears rolling straight away, but he chose that, and it was even yeah. more powerful. It was. So I'm getting goosebumps. Lovely. You see, even thinking about it. Yeah,
2: I know. No, it's absolutely perfect. And talking of what kids like, my daughter is. Big into eighties and nineties music, um, and when we do road trips in the car, she—I she, always let my kids be the kind of DJ um, to mixed effects sometimes. <laughs> but she and I have very similar musical tastes. But she, of course, thinks she thinks it's from like the dark ages, but she loves it as well. So it very frequently would come on when we're driving together. And yeah, if if I was going to have a you know a playlist at my funeral, I'd like to think that one might be on it. How
1: do you want that to go? Do you want do you want like you're not going to go for like reach for the stars by S club seven and try and everyone, you know, you don't want everyone just going, Oh, Kelly was such a laugh. Let's just remember and be really out. You want tears, everybody in like black vows. You want to, black- I think
2: everyone could just do whatever they bloody want. I've got, a, I've got i um, I've got a thing I've done a, because I've done so many, I've lost a lot of people in my life and I've, I've, arranged a lot of funerals and there was one year about three years ago when I um in the first three months of the year I had arranged seven funerals to the point that um yeah just a lot of loss and what I do know is arranging f- the admin of someone dying is immense. So what I have done is I have made sure there is an admin way, an admin free way to handle my death. So my kids and a couple of my close friends know there's a file on my computer, and I've got a hard copy of it in the fu- locked in the filing cabinet. That's got everything from my will to here's one sheet with everyone you need to contact to cancel everything. Here's and and here's how if you just want a kit form funeral where you don't have to worry about anything. You can do it with this, but if you want to completely rip that up and do whatever you want, that's absolutely fine. So I've given them a sort of, um, yeah, one that if they don't want to have to think about it, they can just use it. But I don't care whatever they want to do.
1: So are you comfortable with the idea of death? Then
2: not mass. I mean, I've definitely got. I think I'm in. My kids are half Dutch, and we've lost a few Dutch people um, over the years. And in Holland, a bit like in Ireland, it's open coffin. You spend time with the body. And it's a brilliant way to sort of normalise death. So I think I feel a bit less phased by it than people from cultures where it's like shut the lid, act like it does is not a part of things. So I do yeah. feel like it's part of things. But no, I mean, who's comfortable with the idea of death? I'm quite preoccupied with. Um, it sounds awful thing to say if he's listening or if they're listening. but I, my parents, who are my dad's about to be eighty, my mum's um three years older than him. and i'm I'm really close to them. And I just think I was with them on Sunday, and I just thought, I, I don't know how many, I don't know how long they'll be here for. um, and you you know, you just want to cherish every you don't know when it'll be the last Sunday lunch you've had with your mum or your dad, do you? So I'm quite preoccupied with death, um in terms of realizing. That that generation haven't got potentially that long to go, but yeah, I'm not. Um, so I, I think I, do, I think funerals are the people left behind, aren't they? So whatever anyone who gives a shit who's left behind <laughs> wants yeah. to do, good luck to them. Absolutely. Yeah. So tell me about
1: <laughs> um, school, and let's focus more on when you went uh, to a state school. Like, how was that? Because the 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 idea for me of changing schools will be terrifying. Um, but i guess if you was at a school where you felt like an outsider it must have been a relief i presume to have gone to a state school
2: yeah because i went from that boys school that my parents taught at um they wanted to send me to another private school um that obviously they didn't teach at and the only way we could get me in there was if i got a scholarship because we couldn't afford the fees and i got a music scholarship into that school so my fees were paid for because i was a musician and so i sang in the choir and i played you know a couple of instruments and and i hated it so much it was like the most probably the most unhappy year of my entire life in fact definitely the most unhappy year of my entire life to date and so i finally convinced my parents to let me get out of that school um and i'm from a family of private school teachers so that's just the world we'd been in um And no one really realised there were other options, I don't think. And I really did kind of make myself heard. And I ended up being allowed to go to the local state school. And I was just so relieved that it was the thing, like I I keep going on about kind of girls' magazines, but the stuff I was reading about in magazines, you know, Jackie and then Just 17 and all of those, I felt like I was in that world then. And it felt like what I was reading about and what I was hearing about and what was going on in pop videos and strange hill and it just felt like the things I was seeing around me and I was just so pleased to be there so um it was a big turning point for me just going to my local school at that key time um I went there when I was 13 14 yeah
1: did you did you know what you wanted to be when you was at school
2: no I still don't know what I want to be I've that's why I've moved around a bit (laughs) so no I thought I wanted to be an actor and presenter that's what I thought I wanted to do yeah that's what I thought And did you not um I I did draw I went to I did drama at Goldsmiths um so I left I I left um home to do that but I just didn't have the confidence to do it so I I was yeah very unconfident as a person I'm still quite unconfident but in those days I was very much didn't believe in myself enough to to take the knockbacks of acting or presenting and I didn't look traditionally the way you would need to I wasn't a traditionally sort of attractive thin person which I think you still need to be a bit, but you certainly did need to be in the late 80s, early 90s. I just wasn't confident or cool enough, I don't think, um, and possibly not talented enough. <laughs> so there was that small fly in the ointment as well.
1: Because confidence is a, is a strange thing for for an outsider looking at what you do to walk on stage and try and make people laugh. That's the most terrifying thing that I imagine a big part of the population would would think I could never do that so where does the confidence come from for that because you're it's not like you're in a band it's not like you you're out there with, with a group it's just you and they're staring at you and you take that three seconds you know to find the beat and at that point what's going through your head like because for anybody that isn't confident fucking hell surely comedy's got to be the last place you'd want to go right
2: it's kind of the opposite, and you probably speak to lots of comedians. Um, it takes a lot of effort to make anything look effortless, and I think it's really good for people to to know that because we watch the person doing the thing that yeah. they can do, but they didn't just fall out of bed being able to do that. Yeah. And it can take months to get one gag to really, really work as, in a bulletproof way in a club. Um, so that that's, But it's meant to look like you're just chatting, and people are meant to feel like you're their kind of mate. Um, so... I think it is, I find lots of comedians will say this, and I'm sure lots of musicians and other performers feel the same. If life's tough, which it often is for lots of us, for lots of reasons, the easiest bit of my day when things aren't going very well in my life will be the 20 minutes on stage. Really? And it's the other 23 hours, 40 minutes that are difficult. So, and what you get to, and I think this is a very common thing in sports and music and comedy and lots of different aspects of life when you get to a certain point with comedy where you've definitely got you've got your chops and you've got enough material to know you've got stuff in the bag you know we're always working on new material but we've got stuff to draw on now what makes or breaks a gig is whether you actually turn up on our present and in the gig and by that I don't you're thinking more about how am I going to be in this room than what am I going to say which sounds really pretentious. I mean, it's not like an art form. It's not complicated, but the thing that audiences absolutely love is you being present and working with what's really going on in a way that seems authentic because it is authentic. So you're in a sort of um, you're, you're so in the moment of what you're doing. If you are thinking, Oh, what's it like being on stage? And am I nervous? And you wouldn't be able to, to do it. So um, if there's one thing I say to myself before I go on stage um, it's to get out of my head, not worry about what I'm gonna say at all and just get into my body literally, just like okay, just feel, feel it I guess it's a bit of a sort of um hippie mindful thing, but just just notice your body, go on there and just physically stand up and occupy your space and see what happens. Um so it's but but it's for me much e- I come across when I MC, which I do a lot, I come across as very confident, I can hold the room, I can lark about. If I was out with you and your mates tonight. I wouldn't be a shrinking violet, but I wouldn't necessarily be the big voice. I, I might, you know, I, I could be funny maybe some of the time, but I, I wouldn't be the the big confident voice in the room.
1: Do you find those when you said like that? That twenty minutes on stage is far easier than that. You know, the the rest of the day is that because for that twenty minutes that you're on stage, it's a complete. Like, I guess you sort of touched upon it being in the moment, like, but. Is it just it's a distraction right you're not thinking about anything else other than that?
2: You literally can't think about anything else So if something terrible's happened you know I've been on stage after breakups after hearing people have died, after rows, after difficult calls with my kids and you you can you cannot do what you're doing on stage and be thinking about that other thing you just it's not possible to do it well. So it's a holiday from yourself. yeah you're just doing one thing. And when do we in life ever get to just do one thing? That's all you're doing. Yeah. And if it's working, you're getting the enormous high of laughs and you're c- completely present in the moment. And that's why it's so addictive. You know, that's as pure a hit as, in you know, a heroin. It's yeah. an amazing hit.
1: Okay. Track four. Tell me the first song that you ever buying from a record shop, please.
2: I was kind of tempted to lie about this and be cooler, but then I was like, "No, let's you do this be properly." Can't be cool because this is the one
1: where <laughs> I want absolute honesty. Because you- everybody's <laughs> been shockingly honest with these, and there's been some howlers of have How there.
2: So mine's probably not the biggest howler you've had by some margin. Then, if you've had real howlers, yeah. so mine is it ain't what you do; it's the way that you do it. Fun Boy Three and Banana Rama. Great record. It is a great record, but I feel like I was it's so it was so mainstream at the time that I bought it. that's why I bought it, yeah, and I feel like I either was or I'd like to think I was a bit cooler than that. Yeah. um you know, I was listening to like the Straubs and Ivor Cutler and stuff with with Nick young uh and and sort of weirder kind of stuff and and also stuff from the kind of sixties and and We were doing all that and and Steve Harley and Cockney Rebel and stuff so it's kind of like wasn't completely typical of the stuff I liked yeah. But obviously, I liked it enough. I went and bought it. So yeah, um, and I—I I mean, it is a great track, isn't it? It is a great track. Yeah,
1: and it's, it's quite—it's quite unusual because I think that was was that their second song together. They'd done really saying something first. Yes, yeah, I, I think. think
2: it is. Well, it's certainly the second one that I was aware of. Yeah, yeah, and and obviously that is kind of quite
1: sort of tribal sounding. and and it, as was a lot of fun boy free stuff, and I, I remember. Maybe it is those couple of years, but obviously I was absolutely in love with all three of the Nanas. Like Well, everybody was. Like mainly Chavon. Like but and then it was like and it's Terry all from the specials. And I like, know. It was like what more. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
2: I um, I once I dated a m- music journalist um, who'd been a, I dated him in my thirties but he he was ten years older than me and he'd been a mu- so he'd been a music journalist in the eighties so when I was a teenager he was in his twenties so he had all these really cool stories about the bands that I was a teenager listening to and it sort of seemed enormously cool that somebody. Yeah. I was sleeping with had done all these. Things. Anyway, he had slept with Chavorn from Banana Rama and from Sharda and with Charday, and I remember th- I remember thinking the most attractive thing about him was that he had slept with those two people. I was like, I feel like now I've probably slightly slept with them, haven't I?
1: Yeah, I mean, you could probably sling it on your CV, couldn't uh, you? Yeah one
2: one removed sex with eighties uh, <laughs> pop stars. So in fact, that could be a book, couldn't it? Um, but yeah, so I found that. If, very exciting that that had happened uh, with him and them. So that was my link in later life to the Bananarama. But it wasn't the one I knew I was going to have when I innocently bought that record.
0: Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quinn's is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: Absolutely. Tell me about the record shop and growing up. Was it a place that, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd sort of go and would you regularly buy sort of records and stuff?
2: Well, this was the thing about living in. So, I lived in rural Dorset, like really rural Dorset. We didn't even live near a town, and our nearest town was tiny. And the town that was nearest to where I grew up was a really small place called Shaftesbury in Dorset, which is where the um, the Hovis advert. You know, the famous Hovis advert of the guy going up the hill. That's actually yeah. on Gold Hill in Shaftesbury. It's not All in right. Yorkshire, wherever it's meant to be. So, um, it, so it's very, very picturesque, but not a lot of, um, not a lot of a music scene. And at the time, there wasn't even like a WH Smith. There was a kind of local, um, it was called Harding's. It was the local kind of WH Smith style store. And they had a tiny little record bit at the back upstairs. Mm. So you were down to whatever they had in, which probably also explains why anything I would have bought there would have been mainstream. Like there was no way I could have got something that was a bit more. But then in sixth form, I left home and I moved to Salisbury in Wiltshire to do my A levels at a college there and suddenly there were a couple of record shops, a couple of cool ones and an hour price. And suddenly I could actually go and discover music through leafing through vinyl because they were they were music shops that had things I hadn't heard of. and I also worked at the um, at the Salisbury Arts Center to pay my way through college and we had amazing bands. I saw amazing people. They're very, very wide range of types of music. So for see? me... Throw
1: someone out there. Who'd you see?
2: Well, I, one thing I do remember, and I know he's a bit of an arsehole. I don't believe I'm uh, compromising anything by saying that, but Van Morrison. <laughs> I knew you were Van Morrison, just well, on he, that
1: statement. <laughs> yeah,
2: you didn't. Yeah, exactly. Not Salisbury Arts Centre so much as Wanker. Um, but but I remember seeing him. It was my first weekend working at the Arts Centre and I was like tootling around getting things ready at reception. And he went into the room and all the, all the instruments were out ready um, for them to see their fight. And he just walked around the stage and there were like seven or eight different instruments there. And he just played each one of them, not being, not showing off. He didn't know I was particularly, listening. he just played each one at a sort of prodigally talented level. And I do remember just standing at the back thinking, I've just seen Van Morrison walk around the stage playing all these different instruments so um so it was a combination of that and then things like Blue Oyster Cult and those kind of like I was into like other those kind of that was more my scene of the sort of bands I was going to for choice but I did like Van Morrison so that my my six my sixth form years were all about discovering record shops vinyl massively eclectic taste in music I've still got eclectic taste, and I always did and being a full-on goth but loving loads of other, you know, like I loved Squeeze. I went to see them loads. They played at the Art Centre. So yeah, um, a confused teenager musically and in other ways.
1: I saw Squeeze last year. I um, still love Squeeze. Oh, it, when, whenever I think about if I ever answered the questions to this, my favourite ever intro is "Up the Junction." I just, oh. it's just. Why didn't I think of
2: that? Yes. What
1: The greatest pop song that hasn't got a chorus. Yes. So good.
2: So good. So I've seen Squeeze probably more than any band, any other band. Yeah. Yeah. I first saw them up in pool when I was 15, something like that, 14. And I've seen them regularly ever since. I saw them at the Royal Albert Hall. When was that? Four years ago. Yeah. So, yeah. Love them.
1: Wonderful. Let's go clubbing. Track five, the song that soundtracked your years in Clubland, please.
2: It was hard to pick one because I did, I gave a good account of myself um, on the, that scene, uh, drink and drugs wise. But um, so some of it's a bit of a blur, but it has to be back to life, soul to soul. Um, because I was, I went to Goldsmiths, which is in Newcross. And at the time, their arts college bit was in Camberwell. And I lived in various bits of, of South London in that kind of area, that line from Lewisham um, right the way across Newcross and through to Peckham and then Camberwell. But I settled, um, as much as I settled in those years, in a little basement flat just off Cold Harbour Lane in Brixton, which was obviously near um, the Fridge mm-hmm. in Brixton. So that was my go-to club. And it was also at the start of... Um, e or MDMA as it now is yeah so it was the start of that all kind of becoming a thing an accessible thing and I had very ex- early exposure to ecstasy um, through it through a job I was doing and a guy that was basically running all those kind of raves motorway raves and he paid me in cash in ecstasy and I didn't know what ecstasy was it wasn't a thing so the first time I did ecstasy was before it was very kind of known and did it with th- three mates because we've been given enough for four of us so, yeah, those years um, or that particular time, I think, sold to soul, the fridge in Brixton and doing loads of drugs, really.
1: I mean, it's you mentioned, sort of, you know, the M25 raves and stuff. And, and, and that was very much in and around where I'm from. And, uh, and, and we used to occasionally sort of venture up to the fridge. That was a big night out if we went to the fridge.
2: Even if you lived by the fridge, it was a big night out. <coughs> <hour. laughs>
1: but it's, it's hard to explain to people of, of different, um, different generations just how you could not get away from that soul-to-soul beat for about a year. Yeah. I like, keep on moving dropped and then back to life. That beat was coming out of every XR3I in Essex, 100%. You yes. could not, every shop was playing it, every club was playing it, every pub was playing it. It was such, and it was so British sounding as well. It's like, considering like, you know, I guess when you're making sort of soul music and R&B music, like people generally look across the pond to America for for that fix and, and I think for for a good couple of years Jazzy being that they they snatched that back and they owned it and back to life to this day Karen Wheeler's vocal is just uh, sublime
2: totally and it's definitely the sort of thing that he, even now if I, there's certain sort of tracks I'll put on if I'm having a bit of a blue wake up and I'm just like, I can't quite get my shit together and things aren't falling into place there's a couple of things you'll just bang on and listen to and you're like yeah that's okay that's got me right where I need to be so yeah really and just the you know, just the freedom of it. Because, you know, I, I ended up working for MTV when I was young, when I was in my early 20s and having this sort of dream job. But I also have my kids very young. So that pure, unadulterated freedom, single, living in Brixton, That you so many, you sort of, my daughter's kind of living a bit of that life over in Madrid at the moment. And I just think, I mean obviously I worry a bit about if she's doing a bit too much of those things but I think you know bloody enjoy it because yeah. you're gonna have a lifetime of not being able to really do this stuff to the level you want to do it and as long as you're safe and yeah. you've got some kind of balance and you're not making really bad decisions for yourself then just a bit of undiluted hedonism with an amazing soundtrack absolutely enjoy it yeah
1: absolutely so tell me a little bit about um oh, do you know what I'm touching something you said that you know, soul to soul is the sort of thing that you'll lean on if you wake up when you're feeling a little blue. Is that your go to that you will go for something to kind of shake you out of it? Rather than for me, I'll like right, I'll go and grab some Nick Drake and I'm just gonna go and like, and, and, and laze for like an hour and just embrace that that misery for a bit and then like then I'll crack on. But like I, I always, can't
2: bear the misery, no, I do the opposite. I date you wouldn't you'd never
1: soundtrack it.
2: I do, but I have to be when I'm at a slightly safer space. So when I'm, I say safer, when I'm, if I'm at the real depth of this is hard and I've talked a bit about, you know, suffering, suffering from, you know, like lots of people, depression and anxiety sometimes. So my low moods are very low. And if I'm a very low, low mood, I need to get out of that very low yeah. low mood. And then I might get to the point when I say safe, where it would be emotionally safe sure. to wallow a bit more. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I there were days when I couldn't quite bear to sit with those yeah. harder things. So then I'll go for, you know, come up and see me, make me smile. Yeah. That's always, I was in a band that did, and um, we did, it was a covers band and that was one of my favorites that we used to do. So yeah, it, it makes me happy for lots of reasons. So I tend to try and lift myself up and out yeah. rather than going deep so but Nick me- Drake, I mean, good. There's that you've got. Come on, what a good way to spend an hour on a sofa, no <laughs> yeah, question. Right. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, tell me a little bit about working at MTV.
2: Well, I mean, it was literally the dream job. Uh, you know, I got the job uh, in 1995, so I was 25, 26. So I you applied
1: literally at MTV when Britpop drops.
2: Yes, I was wow. at the Unplugged, the the famous Oasis Unplugged where Liam didn't rock up. Well, he did rock up, but not on stage. Yeah. I was there. I went, I was at the George Michael unplugged. Um, well, lots of the unplugged at that point. So yes, I literally, that's where I worked, but I also unexpectedly got pregnant. So I had this weird time in my life when I was partly out there in that scene, but partly looking after a tiny baby. Um, but yes, I went to all the kind of MTV awards over here and across the pond, um, I completely transformed my life. You know, I'd, I'd never barely been on a plane until then, and suddenly I was jet-setting around, and it was an amazing. And I used to work my – my um I was in the offices on Hawley Crescent in Camden, I still live near there, actually. That's why I live near there, because I spent so many years working for MTV on and off. And um, at the time, they used to do a lot of the live stuff and the recording in the studios in Camden. And my office at one point was, I had a kind of glass-fronted office, and it was next to the boys' dressing room, so where the the male artists would come out to walk to the studio. They'd all come past my my office. So that was, yeah, it was kind of an amazing time, really. And yeah just sort of uh, you you do things in your life where you look back on them and go that was amazing why didn't I enjoy it more I bloody loved it like every day I loved it and I knew I was lucky I totally knew I was lucky and then it did change it got bought it it got bought by Viacom it became corporate but in the 90s I left at the end of in 2000 and then came back on and off after that because it changed so much Um, it became so corporate but it was quite fresh and new and small and MTV. It's hard to say to somebody now what the brand meant then, yeah. but it was an epic kind of thing, wasn't it? On the level Dude. of like people knowing Coca-Cola and, a, and it What and it was when you couldn't get music videos anywhere else, unless there happened to be a show like Top of the Pops. So yeah. that was the music video jukebox. And it's hard to imagine that now. Yeah. So yeah, th- those were amazing, amazing years and um, yeah, what a job and what a time of life to have it. So you
1: you, you tie with the idea of, of acting. You then get the job that everybody wants. Everybody wanted to work at MTV. And you get that and you excel within that. And then you then choose to do another equally competitive and difficult industry in stand-up. We spoke about confidence. Tell me about your relationship with drive.
2: Well, I think you can sum up drive by saying it's the classic sort of therapy question, isn't it? What are you driving out? So if you're very driven, there's something going on. And it's not entirely a positive, healthy thing. So um, it's about always, I've always been the kind of, Uncool person in a cool life, if that makes sense. So, like the, th- the places I've been have been cool. And compared to being, I don't know, I don't want to say any profession because it sounds like I'm writing people off, but compared to lots of things, it sounds glamorous and cool. But I've always felt like the least cool person in the cool places, the least cool of the cool kids. So, I think it's, um I don't really know what it is. I, I know now what it is. The reason I do what I do now is definitely not for fame. I would very much not like to be recognized everywhere. Um, I I but but it's for relevance I think that's why music matters so much it's that we all want to be able to say something and do something that feels relevant and we don't want to feel like we've just been put back on the reserve bench or that we're unheard and unseen so I for me the link now is not about getting out there with confidence in terms of what I exude but maybe daring to say what I want to say all my TikToks I've only just got on TikTok recently and I've got a kind of decent following building up and it's completely authentic what I'm doing on there it's just me it's not wrapped up it's not orchestrated it's not thought about and that's I think people people like that don't they? it's quite vulnerable and flawed and that's how I feel so maybe I'm getting more confident now I'm pretending to be less confident
1: do you find that that sort of validates that that sort of desire to be relevant and 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 heard
2: TikTok and stuff
1: yeah and, and comedy
2: um yeah I, I think it well you literally do have a voice and you are heard yeah. and people might hate it but you are there's no question if anyone's hearing it commenting on it liking yeah. it hating it they've heard it so um and you work out your voice by saying things you know when I try things out comedically I'll have a sort of premise and I'll think well I know what I think and I know why I think that's funny and then you work it through with audiences and you try stuff out and you muck about with it and then you're like "Ah, oh, that's the thing I think and that's the thing people can relate to yeah. so um it, it's yeah so, so I think I think I used to think everything had to be sort of glossy and perfect and I had to pretend that I fitted in and everything was great and now I'm like now I relish the mess you know of it all and, and that's what I'm immersed in and I think it feels less fake and perhaps I'm feeling a bit more confident now I'm pretending a bit less if that makes sense
1: totally I'm going to take you home. A favourite song from an artist from your home county, please.
2: Well, it's funny because when you said it, I, when you asked the questions, I was thinking, oh, you know, there, and then I was like, yeah, of course, cool, PJ Harvey. Jesus, like, how did I not remember yeah. PJ Harvey? So, yes, so um, PJ Harvey from Yeovil, as I'm sure you know, and um, always, I wouldn't say it was kind of, there's a few of, There's a, I should say the actual track, Down by the Water, PJ Harvey. And I'm not complete. I love Down by the Water, and I I, and I love a lot of what PJ Harvey has done, but not everything. But the reason I got even more into PJ Harvey than ever was, um, I I was dating uh, the bassist from My Bloody Valentine for a bit, and she is mates with all that kind of world, and she's also from Yeovil. And it was when I was up in Edinburgh having a miserable time doing a show or whatever, you know, Edinburgh's tough for comedians. Um, it doesn't always go easily. And we just went to see PJ Harvey playing. Um, and we and we knew like, you know, she, she knew everybody was there and like the bad seeds were there. A lot of them were part of the show. And and it was just the most magical holiday from what I was doing as a comedian. And I had this night with PJ Harvey and all those kind of people and Deb, and it was just amazing. And so if PJ Harvey didn't have a close and I don't mean that I hung out with PJ Harvey all night but just being there hearing the music and being there afterwards it just all that thing about some music just bedding into you it kind of bedded into me that night and ever since then I've been even more of a PJ Harvey fan
1: I mean I thought you've been quite humble when you're saying that you know you're you're always the least cool person in the room you know in a cool room (laughs) you know in a cool job you probably were in that instance. Like if you're in a room oh, totally. with Polly Harvey and the bad seeds, you, uh, and someone from My Bloody Valentine, I mean that's th- as cool as it gets.
2: <laughs> I was totally the least cool person in the room. Totally, that's 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 that's, that's going to be the name of my autobiography: least cool person in the room. But at least I've been in some cool rooms, right?
1: Absolutely. <laughs> um... Wonderful, wonderful. I remember
2: sitting down and her saying, um, and we sat down and she, we had these, like, you know, wherever we were, we were in a kind of, we. She, we could, it was like, do you want to watch it um, backstage or do you want to watch it in the main thing? And I think you do want to watch those, don't you? You want to be in the sort of, mm. in the thick of it. And I remember sitting down and saying to Deb, I was like, it, this guy next to me went off to get a drink and I was like, doesn't he look like Johnny Marr? And she went, it's because it's Johnny Marr.
1: When I set this podcast up, right, <laughs> i said it a few times on previous episodes, I set this podcast up, just I, like, I was a happily podcasting elsewhere, and I, but I thought, no, I'm going to do my music podcast, and I said, all I ever want to do is I want to interview Maxine Peake and Johnny Marr. I've been lucky to speak to Maxine. I spoke to Niall Marr, I spoke to um, Johnny's boy, I've still not spoke to Johnny Marr. And I am obsessed with Johnny Marr. He's like my absolute hero. Tell me you spoke to him.
2: I did speak to him. Um, I said, uh, I think I've dropped my pen. Uh, Can you just see if it's under your feet?
1: (laughs) Definitely the uncoolest person in the room, Gally.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So there you go. Love it.
1: (laughs) Seize the moment.
2: (laughs) But do you know what? I have always believed... And I, whether it's some music or or then I worked in, obviously in telly and been in the orbit of some massive names throughout my life, but because I'm the uncle person in the room. But if there's one thing I've learned, it's just to treat people like they're just so normal, like just don't. So I've never, ever sought out a conversation with anyone who's a big name. And if a conversation's happened, I've treated it very much like I'm chatting to, you know, Nora two doors up in the street because yeah. it I, I just... I just think that's what you, when you when you get that close to that world, albeit I wasn't a part of it, but I was close to it the whole time. I it just doesn't. It is amazing when you're close to people that matter to you. But equally, I would never say anything that didn't feel like a no, kind of normal conversation. I just yeah. wouldn't. But I think I could have probably, in retrospect, come up with something better than that. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay. Like, this is your last song, and so this is when uh, you get to be a tastemaker and, uh, and an influencer. Um, could you tell my listeners a song that you think they may not know that you would like them to hear?
2: I was really torn on this. Am I allowed to say the one I didn't choose just because it's a great yeah, track? Yeah, some honorable yeah. mentions. So th- yeah, so the one I didn't choose is in these sho- in these shoes Kirsty McCall, which lots of your listeners will know because they're people who are musically savvy but not everybody knows it. So if anyone doesn't know it, I think it's a phenomenal track yes. and and yeah, like many people found it so devastating when we lost Kirsty McCall and she very much is a part of um, everything that I've loved about music for decades. So that's an amazing track. So I was tempted to choose that. But I do think some people will know it so this one I think less people will know um, and it's drunken <clears throat> excuse me drunken poets dream by Hayes Carl have you ever heard of that
1: I hadn't um, I've listened to it uh, since since you sent the list over it's gorgeous like tell me a little bit more about it and where you discovered it
2: so the way I discovered it I was um, dating somebody over here this is about 10 15 years ago probably closer to 15 years ago and he co-owned a bar called the Phoenix Saloon in New Braunfels, which is um, near Austin in Texas. And the first time I went out there with him, we it was during South by Southwest, and I'd never been to Austin. And what a time to go to Austin. Yeah, absolutely. So we were just, sur- I mean, surrounded by music. And have you been to South by Southwest? No. So when you're there, I mean, anyway, Austin's a bit like that. And Texas, the kind of cool bits of Texas are like that. But every single bit of space is used for music. So every car park, every street corner, every venue. And it's completely tribe agnostic. It doesn't matter what you look like, who you are, what age you are. You walk in to whatever type of music is going on and you are completely unjudged and welcome. Which is, by the way, why I love aces and eights, because it's the coolest bar in london i reckon but no one gives a fuck you can go in whoever whenever and you're accepted so um aces Ace is like a mini slice of uh, of austin texas i reckon in that regard so it it just not you know just blew me away the music and everything that was going on in austin and i was very in love and this guy co-owned this this bar and so we would spend a few nights at the phoenix saloon which i don't even know i'm sure it probably is still going and they used to have brilliant live music but not massive names. Certainly names that are quite big in the country scene and maybe big there, but not names we would know. And this guy, Hayes Carl came on who I didn't know who he was. He was quite good looking. It, it was a whole different face of country music. I had no idea if there's one type of music I didn't know much about. It was probably country at the time. And this guy just came on and um, that was the first song he played. And I was just like, wow. It was like, heart-stoppingly good and I love it it's another one of my absolute favorite and and I and I wish I wish everybody knew about Hayes Carl not everything he's done has been great but he's done some amazing stuff
1: we make it easy for people to go and listen to it because we do a little Spotify playlist to accompany the podcast with all of the songs that we've spoken about today we put Kirsty McCall on there as well of course thank you um and I guess let's let's talk a little bit more um as we start to wrap up about you and what what's going on with you so what can people expect from Callie Beaton from the rest of this year?
2: Well, my big thing like this, that's why I say, please, when you say, I love podcasts, I love your podcast, and I listen to podcasts all the time. If I'm not listening to music, I'm listening to podcasts. And my podcast is the big thing for me at the moment. Um, I've been doing it. I'm about to do the 100th episode of it. Namaste, motherfuckers. And it's, you know what it's like with podcasts. It takes... I don't know how long it took for yours to start to get kind of really good numbers, but it's takes a long time to break through. And you do these things as a passion project and people don't realize you're probably losing money on them. Well, you are losing money on them to start with. And I've just been trying to keep the faith of my podcast because I love it. And I love the conversations I have on it and I have incredible guests on it. And so that's my, that is my massive passion, but it's also something that professionally starting to, to kind of get some momentum. So for me, it's the podcast. I'm doing quite a few bits of radio and telly. Um, I love radio more than telly. So I hope to do more and more radio. And I've also got a book in the works, um, which is a bit of a spinoff from the podcast. So it's a kind of um, so that's that's going to happen by the end of this year as well. And of course, I'm I'm gigging like a motherfucker as well yeah. still. So still trying to get better as a comedian. So um, lots going on.
1: Wonderful. And if people want to keep up to speed with you for, for for gig dates and news about the book and everything else, where's the best place to follow you, Callie?
2: So I'm on... I've got a website that's usually pretty up to date so people can see my live stuff and it's um, com. and then I'm on every different social media, Twitch, Twatch, Twatch, TikTok. I'm on the whole bleeding lot. Um, and if people just look up Callie Beaton Comedian, they'll have no trouble finding me. So very Wonderful. findable.
1: Well, if it's cool with you when um when this goes out we'll tag you in it so people that aren't following you already can go and uh, can go and follow you
2: very cool with me very cool with me
1: wonderful Kelly, i've had an absolute great time chatting to you thank you so much it's been a real pleasure thank
2: you for having me it's been amazing
1: wonderful i'm going to press stop don't go anywhere i won't what a wonderful netter Kelly was absolutely delightful um had such a nice chat um, chose great records, um, great records that were very kind of, you know, around the time of, of my life. In, in them, you know, we're, we're not too dissimilar in A, so it's always nice when you have them kind of shared moments of, of, of records. And, it's, you know, that, the, the records that hit hard with Cali certainly made a, a big dent, you know, in, in my formative years as well. So that makes for a really nice, easy chat. As mentioned just before we finish the episode, go give Cali a follow. She'll be tagged on everything on our socials. Go give her a follow, and uh, yeah, go and go and explore so much stuff. A book coming out, you know, and 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 go check out the podcast. It's it's a really good pod. Um, We wrote about it in Pod Bible recently, so go check that out. And uh, and yeah, and 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 head along to one of her one of her shows. Um, Right, I think I'm pretty much done. I'm aware that I I I, I whittled away for ages chatting at the beginning um and so i'll keep this brief but yeah in regards to everything else one stop shop off the beat and track podcast.com i'll see you next time in the meantime be nice to each other see you soon bye